if you could grab your Bibles, uh, we are going through a sermon series, making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're new and joining and you're just coming in, uh, we are in Matthew chapter 26, and we are just after Jesus had his last supper with the disciples, the final, the final meal where we get that communion celebration that we just um, celebrated, where, where that was instituted. If you're wondering, we use a translation of the Bible called the ESV, and that's the one that we will be reading from. So if you need to choose that on your phone, if you're using a phone, fantastic. I've entitled this message this morning, Matthew 26, 30 to 46, the title is, The Hour Has Come. The Hour Has Come. Let us read verses 30 to 46. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here. Well, I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching and reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a long time since I played a grand final in sport, but the feeling the night before you play your grand final, I don't know what it's been like for you if you've had the privilege of being in a grand final, a feeling of 
trepidation, anxiety, nerves. I mean, all the, I used to play rugby league and all the trainings twice a week, all the brutality, all the sprints we had to do, running from 50 meter mark to the post and back 12 times, and then running from the zero to the 10, eight, zero to the 24, zero to the 42, zero to the 51, zero to the 101, and then do it all again. All of those moments, building up, building up, all the games, all the, you know, the tackles, the injuries, the stud marks, the, the pain, the dirt, the, the grit. You get to the night before the grand final and I just, I could never sleep. I was, I was so anxious, so torn up, so fearful of what was to come, but so looking forward to the glory, so expectant, hoping, and then also deathly afraid of the loss. Perhaps you haven't experienced that with a footy grand final. Maybe it's the night before your wedding and just you know your whole world's about to change and there's this, ah, your gut is wrenching. But as we, as we come to this story today, it's not really that that's happening. It's not sort of the same thing. It's similar There is Jesus viscerally experiencing this gut-wrenching and raw and painful moment, but it's not because he doesn't know what lies ahead of him. It's not because he's not aware of will it work or will it not work? Will the Father accept my sacrifice or not? No, there's something far deeper going on in Gethsemane. And truly, as I prepared this week, This is an incredibly difficult passage to spend a week in. And truly, as I try to get my head around this divine moment, there there is a sense of terror. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed and useful, but there are some sections of Scripture which feel different. It feels different, like holy ground, like something... We are, we are seeing here something that is communion between the Father and the Son, a pain of the, between the, the very Godhead, the Trinity. You know, as, as we come to this text, it feels almost impossible to, to try and even communicate what is going on here and to enter into it. For here in this passage is an insight into the the very mystery of the incarnation. God becoming man. Where we see up front and in raw brutality the divinity and humanity of Christ on full display. And we see it here not in power but rather in weakness. And in horror. It's been my prayer that the Lord would somehow visit us in this preaching time to communicate the glory and the love and the horror of this passage that we would be caught up in this drama because we enter into this passage. We enter in, but we enter in as the the bad characters. We enter in. There's two things that Matthew's showing us in this passage, at least, that I want to focus on this morning. The faithlessness of man and the faithfulness of the Son of Man. And we enter into the horror of the faithlessness of man. That's when we come in. And we're going to see the faithfulness of the Son of Man. And we're going to land on this one idea that we, the faithless, are upheld by the faithful. And hopefully, through this journey, we will have hope. So two points for us this morning in an application. The faithlessness of man and the faithfulness of the Son of Man. Point number one. The faithlessness of man. Verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, most likely Psalm 118... Psalms 113 to 118 were Passover psalms, psalms that they would sing on that evening and in that week. It's quoted many times in Holy Week, you'll notice. They went out to the Mount of Olives. 
So they leave Jerusalem, they go, they're still within the area of Jerusalem, but they leave the city, they're in the Mount of Olives. They've just eaten the Last Supper. Jesus has just given out the bread and the wine. He's just predicted that a new covenant is coming through his blood on the cross. He's he's just released Judas to go and betray him. So there's not 12 disciples here, there's only 11. And then Jesus looks at them all and says, in verse 31 and 32. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. These are frightful words. These are the 11 that he has. He's already lost one the betrayer, Judas, now there's 11, and now he's saying, you're all going to fail too. You're all going to fall. I've spent three years teaching you. You've been in my presence, the master teacher, for three years, and they're going to fail at the crucial moment. They're going to fail because it was prophesied that they would fail. Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13 that God will strike the good shepherd if you go back and read that passage, and the sheep will flee. And Israelites are representing Israel from that passage. Israel turns their back on the Lord, and so now the faithful disciples will turn their back on the Lord, as we will see in the coming weeks. They will flee. They will fall. But note, too, the grace. I don't know how Jesus was able to hold this all together. You will all fall, verse 32, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You will fall, but you will see me again. This is not the end. Already he predicts their failure and their redemption. We see it here, and that's exactly what happens. But Peter answered, I think probably how we would want to answer, Wouldn't you want to answer like Peter and if I had to put it before you tonight or this morning and say, this week you will turn your back on Christ? We should want to answer with Peter in a sense, though they all fall away, verse 33, because of you, I will never fall away. Bravado, goodwill, not sure exactly what motivated Peter, but I resonate with him. I don't want to fall away from Christ. I don't want to ever deny Christ in my life. I never want to be in a situation, and who knows what will the future of Australia and religious freedom be. I never want to be in a situation where I turn my back on my Lord and I deny him, and I'm sure you don't either. But Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, verse 34, this very night... Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Not only, Peter, will you fall away, but you'll even worse. The other disciples, they're going to desert Jesus. But uh, Peter will not just desert, he will deny. He will deny him not just once, not just twice, but three times, bold face, denial of the man that he loves and worships and claims allegiance to. He's claiming faithfulness that we would all want to claim, right? But as we will see, he is faithless. And it's in effect like Jesus is flipping over a timer, one of those hourglass timers, and saying, by the time this runs out, it's over, Peter. You will deny me. Peter comes back again, though, trying to demonstrate. Maybe he's wounded in his pride, but Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples gather in and and they say the same. I think we would too. I will die for you, Christ. Yet Jesus' words stand over them. The shepherd... The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And we too are, I think, just as likely as Peter and the disciples to claim faithfulness but to actually be faithless when the moment comes. 
And the reason I say that is because most likely, in small ways, in little ways, we give up on Christ all the time. We give up on the commands. We give up on the calling, the duty that we have. Think about this week and how many times did you maybe think of sharing the gospel and telling someone about the good news of Jesus and you, you just didn't? Or someone stood for something proudly that you disagreed with and you thought, I should say something, but you didn't. Or a moral situation where you knew To do X, Y, or Z would be wrong, and you did it anyway. The reality is is that in all of our lives, the rooster is constantly crowing. We are no different. Although it may look different, we are no different to Peter and the disciples because we bear the same human frailty. Born within all of us is a a proneness to faithlessness. And then we don't need to live in the guilt and shame of that because Jesus doesn't even let the disciples live in it for too long. In verse 32, he reminds them, but I'll be with you in Galilee. This is not the end. And so if you come this morning full of shame and regret, full of like, I have blown it this week. I do not deserve to be sitting in this company. The Lord already knows. The Lord already speaks grace to you. We've already received grace in the singing and the worship and the communion. And so as you honestly assess your faithlessness and your proneness, proclivity to be faithless, don't be hopeless in it. There is hope, and we'll get to that later. So the first thing that Matthew wants us to see is this faithlessness of man. And we're going to see more of that in point number two. But let us move now to the faithfulness of the Son of Man. Point two, the faithfulness of the Son of Man. What would you do with the final, if you knew, final 24 hours of your life? You got it. This is it. By, you know, what's the time? 11 a.m., Monday morning, you're going home. It's done. What would you do? I mean, what are the first things that come to mind? You, you know you have a limited period of time. What do you do? You might want to go and hug your friends and your family last time. Or you might be like, I just got to go and experience that one thing I've always wanted to experience. Or I'm selling everything I have and buying that ticket and going to that place. Well, let's see what Jesus does with his final few hours of freedom. His last moments even with the disciples. His last time on earth before his death. He doesn't even sleep. He doesn't party. He doesn't run. But instead he prays. He finds a quiet garden in a beautiful setting. And he takes the time to be alone with his father. That's how he spends his final moments. Verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Gethsemane was likely a place where they crushed olives and made olive oil. It's probably a beautiful, privately owned piece of land that maybe one of Jesus' followers or friends allowed him to come into because he often used to go there. But it's no coincidence that Jesus takes them to a garden. The garden of Gethsemane. Where did all the troubles in the world begin? In a garden. With the first man, Adam, who fell with his wife Eve in the garden of Eden. In the garden of Eden, the earth was cursed, man was cursed, woman was cursed, the serpent was cursed. But there in that garden, a promise was made that a snake crusher would come from the womb of Eve and though Satan the serpent would bruise or bite his heel, he would crush Satan's head. And so now we find ourselves in a garden and the new Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, representing all of humanity now, is tested and he falls to his knees in the garden. Verse 37 to 38. 
and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, look at these words, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is real sorrow. Jesus is a real man. He's not play acting. He's not God wrapped in human flesh and he's not man. He's truly God and truly man. That's what Orthodox Christians believe. Every major heresy in the church gets this wrong. Either Jesus was just a man or he was just God, but both is what the scriptures teach us. And here we see Christ as man and God come together in weakness and in sorrow. Literally, he was distressed. Does your doctrine of Christ include distressed? That's who he is. He's sorrowful, anxious perhaps, torn up inside. So anxious and sorrowful that he calls his disciples to just be with him. He just wants their presence. The Son of God needed people in this moment. He needed his friends with him. In these exact words, he pulls from Psalm 42:11, a psalm that you might have prayed in your own distress and sorrow. Why are you down, cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Cast down, sorrowful, distressed. Think of the picture we've had of Jesus, this whole narrative of Matthew. Receives the Spirit. God speaks to him. (laughs) You are my son with whom I'm well pleased. He's driven into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights without eating, tempted by Satan, yet stands firm. Goes around preaching, healing, teaching, facing the authorities, raising the dead, making the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Demons come at him and he tells them to be silent. The authorities come at him and he always answers. He's never troubled. Have we ever seen Jesus troubled? Matthew 1 through 26, never troubled. But now it all changes. Why is the case? Well, let's read on. Verse 39. He separates himself from the disciples. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. So he's distressed, he's sorrowful, he's in turmoil, and now he falls to his knees. His face is on the ground of this garden, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus here is wrestling with the reality of the calling upon his life. The calling that he and the Father planned before eternity began. Jesus isn't afraid of death in this moment. Many great men have gone to their deaths with greater resolve than Jesus Christ. This is not a fear of whips or a fear of nails or a fear of starvation or a fear of insult. This is not the fear that Jesus is experiencing. He says, let this cup pass from me. What Jesus fears in this moment is something far greater than physical torment, even the torment of execution via crucifixion. The cup. The cup refers to this Old Testament idea of divine destiny. The cup is what God makes people drink and his will goes forward. At various places in the Old Testament, the cup is the cup of blessing or the cup of wrath. And Jesus here is speaking of the cup of wrath that he will drink. Isaiah 51.17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. 
You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. The cup that Jesus is going to drink is the cup of the Lord's wrath. The reason why Jesus staggers and falls to his face and is in turmoil and distress and sorrow is because God's very own holy hatred of sin will soon, soon be upon him. In all of God's hatred of sin and in Jesus' own hatred of sin, for he is God himself. He hates sin, the sins of all mankind. And like looking into a crystal ball, seeing the future, he sees the wrath of God coming upon him in 12 to 16 hours. And so he staggers not over the fear of death, but the the wrath of God that he will have to drink and pour upon himself, draining it to the dregs. You see, the relationship between this father and the son is not like any relationship we have here on earth. You, you and I, we, we love each other. We're friends. And some of you, you know, you're married to each other. You have a deep love for one another that goes for many, many years. You've covenanted together. You looked at each other in the eye on that day, whenever it was, and you pledged promises till death do us part. But the love between the father and son eclipses all other loves. There is no love like the father has for the son and the son has for the father. And yet, on the cross, Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, it's it's like the wedding ring is taken off and thrown down. That's what causes Jesus to stagger in the garden. And so he prays, if it be possible, if there's any other way, if there's any other way we can save this church, these people, take this cup from me. I can't, I can't bear it. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. This is what When Jesus drinks the cup, this is what happens. For our sake, he that is God made him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs who is hanged on a tree. In this cup is our sin, your sin, my sin, and God's holy wrath against it. And just like a sun through a magnifying glass and intensifying the ray, That's what will happen to Jesus upon the cross. All of God's wrath that should be placed on the elect for our sins is placed on him. And on the cross, it will be like God will look upon Jesus as a murderer, as a liar. It's like God on the cross is saying, you adulterer, you abuser of women, you abuser of children, you thief, you gossip, you cheat, you are forsaken. That's the cup. That's why he staggers. For us, for me, for you, we're in the cup. Luke records this. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. But even in the strengthening, verse 44, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's a harrowing scene. Even with the strength of an angel, he's even more agonized. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Not like Adam and Eve, who said, not as you will, but as I will. The new Adam, 
Submission to the plan of the Father, even as God the Son. The scene changes, verse 40 to 41. And he came to the disciples. And found them sleeping. Isn't that you and I? And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The faithfulness of the Son of Man, the faithlessness of man. One hour of company. One hour of vigilance. It's not possible. Why? What's the reason we have sinned this week? The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Forty-two, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, and notice the change, if this cannot pass, it's like the Lord has answered him, no, you will drink it. If this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. The change here is that Jesus is now asking for strength. He's positioning himself to bear the wrath to bear the curse all the way to the end. Your will be done. Verse 43, And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Doesn't even wake them up this time. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We don't know how long Jesus agonized in the garden, but safe to assume it was at least an hour if he said you could not watch with me an hour. Perhaps he prayed for two or three hours. The disciples fall into sleep, Luke tells us, because of their sorrow. And then, emboldened, strengthened by the Father, the angel, he's resolved. He's going. Wakes them up. And rather than running, he's saying, get up. The hour has come. My betrayer is here. I'm on. And we see in verse 45 the two themes that we've been looking at already this morning. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The Son of Man refers to Jesus Christ. He's the faithful one and he's betrayed by the faithless ones. So where does this leave us? There's so many ways we could go with this passage. What I want us to see this morning is that that we, the faithless, are upheld by the faithful one. We could spend a, a considerable amount of our time surveying the cup and the wrath and the cross, but we will do that in the next number of weeks. Today, I want us to, by way of application, look at the the weakness within us and look at Jesus' counsel to us and the counsel from his example in the garden that it would strengthen us. And so I want us to apply this passage in a few different ways, but let me go through them one by one. Number one, beware of this. We can all fall. Beware 
we can all fall. Whether you feel like a failure coming in this morning or you feel like a spiritual success, this passage teaches us we can all fall. Jesus said the spirit is willing. You can be desirous to not fall, but the flesh is weak. We may make great boasts and have little to show for it. See, none of us, not me as the pastor, not anyone here, is immune from sinful defeat. No one is immune from a fall like Peter and the disciples. No one here is immune from the weakness of the flesh. In fact, the moment you think that you're above that or you're done with certain sins, you're likely exactly where Satan wants you. Not me. That's where he wants you. Resting in me, in the flesh. And Jesus says, therefore, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, Satan right now may be actively bidding some of you away from your devotion to Christ or away from the duties he's assigned you. Temptation abounds in our lives. Temptation is not always, you know, a serpent in a tree telling you to eat fruit. It's more subtle than that. It's the lies we believe. It's the, it's the air that we breathe in the world. Temptation abounds and we are weak and we're prone to fall into it. Satan may be tempting you as a father to just focus only on your work and to give up on training your children, to give up on modeling love and kindness and strength in the home. As a mother, you may be tempted. You know you're meant to nurture and care for your children, but instead you actually, if you're honest, you just want to run away. As a celibate single, you know that you're called to purity and wisdom and to not live for yourself, but if you're honest, you just want to throw it in and just do what feels good. As a worker, you know you're not meant to be lazy and work, you're meant to work hard for your boss whether they're looking or not and you know you're meant to be generous with your funds but you just want to get ahead and you're willing to break the rules to do it. Temptation abounds. And Jesus is saying to us this morning through the disciples... Be alert. Be on guard. Left to yourself, you will fall and fall hard. So where do we get the power to fight? You know, it's not all, we're not meant to be depressed coming out of here this morning. Sobered, but not depressed. Where do we get the power to fight? Jesus is explicit. Prayer. He's simple. Prayer. Verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul says in Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer, according to Jesus, is the antidote to our temptations. Prayer is the antidote to the weakness of the flesh. Prayer has the power to fight off our flesh. It has the effect of liberating you and I from the lures and enticements of the world. And friends, this is likely why we're so often failing and falling. Lack of prayer. Deficiency in this duty leads to destruction. You see, prayerlessness is not neutral. Prayerlessness is active. It is an active activity that leads to sin. By not praying, you are doing something. The disciples here were commanded to pray, but instead they slept. They slept and therefore they fell into sin. Jesus cared for them. He warned them. He said, 
Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Who knows what would have happened if they had have prayed. But because they did not pray, they sinned all the more. But look at the example of Jesus. Agony, terror, sorrow. But prayer strengthened him and helped him to stand faithful. Prayer strengthened Jesus and helped him to stand faithful. Prayerlessness depleted the disciples and therefore they were faithless. Prayer strengthens the weak flesh. Prayerlessness depletes us and leads us to sin. So how how is your prayer going? How is your personal time of watching and praying going? We are in a war with our flesh, with the world. It's there. Our our strength comes through prayer, yet so often we're like the disciples, sleeping. We may be awake, but we're sleeping. Sleeping in games, sleeping in TV, sleeping in work, sleeping in relationships, sleeping in feasting, sleeping in all manner of things, but we're sleeping. We're not alert. We're not watchful. We're not praying. I came across a story in my studies this week that I think will be worth quoting at length because it dispels a myth that I believe we're likely to believe about prayer, and that is this, that it shouldn't be hard. Prayer, we think, should just feel good and come naturally. It shouldn't be a struggle or a wrestle. But this passage actually teaches us the opposite. Jesus is trying to teach us the opposite, that our flesh is weak, And even if we want to, our spirit is willing, even if we want to pray, our flesh will oppose us. So let me read at length a quote from a commentary from R. Kent Hughes, speaking of a pastor called Dr. J. Sidlow Baxter. Helpfully, Dr. J. Sidlow Baxter once shared his own pastoral diary with a group of pastors who asked us just this question. He began telling how in 1928 he entered the ministry determined that he would be the most Methodist Baptist of pastors, a real man of prayer. However, it was not long until his increasing pastoral responsibilities, administrative duties, and the subtle subterfuges of pastoral life began to crowd prayer out. He began to get used to it, making excuses for himself. I know this in my own ministry life, and we know this in our own lives. Then one morning a crisis came as he stood over his work-strewn desk and looked at his watch. The voice of the Spirit was calling him to pray. Have you experienced that? But at the same time, another velvety voice told him to be practical and get his letters answered, his emails. He ought to face up to the fact that he was not of the spiritual sort, that only a few people could be like that. That did it. That last remark, said Baxter, hurt like a dagger blade. I could not bear to think it was true. He was horrified by his ability to rationalize away the very ground of his ministerial vitality and power. And that's not just true for ministers, it's true for all of us. That morning, Sidlow Baxter took a good look into his heart and he found there was a part of him that did not want to pray and a part that did. You know that struggle if you're a Christian. The part that didn't was his emotions and the part that did was his intellect and will. This analysis, this understanding paved the way to victory. In Dr. Baxter's own inimitable words, and now he quotes, As never before, my will and I stood face to face. I asked my will the straight question, Will, are you ready for an hour of prayer? Will answered, Here I am. And I'm quite ready if you are. So Will and I linked arms and turned to go out for our time to prayer. At once, all the emotions began pulling the other way and protesting. We're not coming. I saw Will stagger just a bit. So I asked, can you stick it out, Will? And Will replied, yes, if you can. So Will went and we got down to prayer, dragging those wriggly, and I don't even know what this word is, but... (laughs) obstreperous, whatever, emotions with us. It was a struggle all the way through. 
at one point when Will and I were in the middle of an earnest intercession, I suddenly found one of those traitorous emotions had snared my imagination and had run off to the golf course. And it was all I could do to drag the wicked rascal back. A bit later, I found another of the emotions had sneaked away with some off-guard thoughts and was in the pulpit two days ahead of the schedule, preaching a sermon that I'd not yet finished preparing. At the end of that hour, if you had asked me, have you had a good time? I would have had to have replied, no. It has been a wearying wrestle with contrary emotions and a truant imagination from beginning to end. What is more, that battle with the emotions continued between two and three weeks. And if you had asked me at the end of that period, have you had a good time? In your daily praying, I would have had to, I would have had to confess no. At times it seems as though the heavens were brass and God too distant to hear and the Lord Jesus strangely aloof and prayer accomplishing nothing. Yet something was happening. For one thing, Will and I really taught the emotions that we were completely independent of them. Also, one morning for about two weeks after the contest began, just when Will and I were going for another time of prayer, I overheard one of the emotions whisper to the other, Come on, you guys, it's no use wasting any more time resisting. They'll just go the same. That morning, for the first time, even though the emotions were still uncooperative, they were at least quiescent, which means quiet, which allowed Will and I and me, uh, Will and me to get on with prayer undistractedly. Then, another couple of weeks later, what do you think happened? During one of our prayer times, when Will and I were no more thinking of the emotions than of the man and the moon, one of the most vigorous of the emotions unexpectedly sprang up and shouted, Hallelujah! At which all the other emotions exclaimed, Amen! And for the first time, the whole of my being, intellect, will, and emotions, was united in one coordinated prayer operation. All at once, God was real. Heaven was open. The Lord Jesus was luminously present. The Holy Spirit was indeed moving through my longings and prayer, and prayer was surprisingly vital. Moreover, in that instant, there came a sudden realisation that heaven had been watching and listening all the way through those days of struggle against chilling moods and mutinous emotions. Also, that I'd been undergoing necessary tutoring by my heavenly teacher. I want to quote that at length because I think it shows the reality of prayer, my experience of prayer, perhaps yours. We want to do it. We know we need it. Jesus is teaching us the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. We want to have fruit in our life. We want to succeed. We want to live well. And the answer is prayer and it will not be easy. It will be a wrestle. The Lord Jesus in the night that he was betrayed wrestled in prayer, fell on his face, agonized, needed an angel to comfort him. Still, after the angel, sweat blood in prayer. And if that's what it was like for the Lord Jesus, will it not be like that for you and I? So friends, if you want to bear fruit and if you want to stand in the day of temptation and overcome your weakness, pray. Pray. Drag those rascally emotions along. I, I thought, after reading this, I thought, I'll give it a crack. So I set a timer for an hour. I like, okay, here we go. And maybe I should be better. I'm a pastor. I should be able to pray for an hour, no sweat. But it was, yeah, I experienced that same thing. I, I couldn't keep my focus. I had to pray out loud. And I was like, my whole body didn't want to do it. And I started praying like this against my emotions. Lord, I pray for Murray and that he will enjoy God. And I pray for, you know, Maddie, that she will be a great chiropractor. And it was terrible. If you had walked into Iron Street on Friday afternoon, you would have seen the most strange human being <laughs> as I was on my knees wrestling. I got to 36 minutes, okay? <laughs> and then I started preparing our next sermon series. So I got, you know, that's what happened. That's the reality. But Okay, I was strengthened from it. You will be too. 
So friends, if you want it, we have to wrestle for it. We will be strengthened in it. We have a Holy Spirit who will help us when we pray. And you will fail in this. You will rest in your flesh. You will fall. Sadly, that's the reality. But we don't need to be dismayed. We don't need to be condemned. We don't need to think we're the world's worst person. We may be comforted even in our failures because we may fall, but he never did. He never did. Through prayer, he triumphed. Through prayer, he went to the cross. Through prayer, he drank the cup to the dregs and staggered into death. Through prayer, the wrath of God fell upon him and all of your prayerlessness and all of your faithlessness was paid for in full. To finish, I want to read Hebrews 5, 7, which explains the the game day, the grand final experience that Jesus had. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We are faithless. He is faithful. And if we want to stand, we must rely on the faithful one. And the lesson from Jesus today is rely by watching and praying. Let's join together in that now and we'll sing our final song. Lord, would you help us to wrestle and agonize in prayer, to fight the distraction, to to fight our weakness of our flesh, so that we would be sharpened and strengthened and aided, so that we would live for your glory and become holy and righteous just like you are. And we thank you, Father, for pouring your wrath upon your Son, that we would never have to face that. We never have to drink the cup. We never have to face your fury, but instead we are your sons and your daughters and how can we thank you enough? Would you lead us this week in faithful prayer? In Jesus' name, amen.